I am continuing through the book of Luke. Uh, However, this morning I'm going to take a rather roundabout way of getting there. Uh, So I would invite your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I'll read the first 11 verses. It's also printed at the back of your bulletin. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south. It turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Men cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Thus, the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I have, as you probably know, uh, frequently have uh, vivid dreams. One dream that I have is an old town in ruins. It isn't an ancient town, it's a modern town. It used to have a Dollar General and a Shell gas station. There's a Lucky's Diner on the corner and a Dickinson's menswear store. There's a post office that was made of brick and mortar. And right across the street, there's a Ben Franklin five and dime store. There's some places that remind me a lot of my hometown. But it's in ruins. The streets are broken. The windows are smashed out. There's pillars of concrete with bent rebar all over everywhere. There's glass on the sidewalks. It's hot. There's dying grass bursting through the asphalt. What really gets me in this dream is the silence. I can't even hear my own heart beating. There's no wind. There's no far-off whistle of a bird. There's no children in the streets, no lovers whispering. There's no mourners and nobody laughing. It's just this heavy Darkness of sound, if you will. There is light. The light is tinged yellow. In my dream, there's this strange feeling I can't put my finger on of old pain. The place feels unsafe, and yet for some reason I'm drawn there. I have to drive there behind this old dead lake. And I remember the road very vividly going up past this lake. It used to be full of houseboats and revelers and water skiers, but now it's empty. I don't know why I'm going, but I'm afraid of this place. There's a taste in the back of my throat that I can't pin down. It feels like pain. Pain. 
long forgotten, and it's somehow associated with this town that's in ruins. There's something about the ruins that call the soul to sober reflection. I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm not afraid and I'm frightened. It's not a nightmare, but I sit there and think about it. I work it over in my mind. Poets and artists and musicians understand the power of ruins. Ruins speak of wasted dreams and past disasters and forgotten friendships. Johnny Cash, before he died, sang about his empire of dust. Perhaps I'm the first to dream of ruins with a dollar general store in the middle of it, but I'm not the first to dream of ruins. Shakespeare's Hamlet reminisces over a skull in the graveyard. Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote his poem Ozymandias, talking about the fallen statue in the middle of the desert with a shattered visage and a look of contempt on its face. And on the pedestal, the words read, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my work, she mighty in despair. And there's nothing there except decay. And the desert stands stretch miles and miles around. The fact is, the ruins of the shattered visage, the skull of York, Johnny Cash's empire of dirt, and my ruins of the Dollar General, echoes a reality that none of us want to face. Here, under the sun... We have no lasting country. Our labor, our buildings, our loved ones, our art, our music, every endeavor under this sun are headed to the grave. There's no amount of effort or money or skill or wisdom or beauty that will alter that reality. Perhaps the forgotten pain in my dream is a memory of Eden. We were created to have purpose and meaning. We weren't created for mass graves. We were created to love God and to live with him in eternal blessedness and to praise him forever. But now the world's under a curse. We don't live as we were created to live. And we are not home. We live in this world that the the inspired preacher in our text calls under the sun. Under the sun describes everything that we see, taste, touch, feel. Everything that we can examine, everything that we can describe and know with our senses. It's the labor we undertake, the spouses we marry, the kids we raise, the music, the art, the poetry. It's the institutions that we support and the buildings that we build and the gardens that we plant and the charities that we donate to. On the one hand, these things are beautiful. Again, Shakespeare, speaking of man, wrote, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, and so forth. And that he also says, And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? That's life under the sun. On the one hand, noble and wise and beautiful, you can see in the ruins something there that was noble and wise and beautiful and wonderful. But now it's the quintessence of dust. And what does the preacher say about it? He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
The word vanity was also the name of the first murder victim, Abel. That's the Hebrew word for vanity. In Hebrew, it's pronounced hevel. Two breathy consonants. To pronounce the word is to know the meaning. Hevel. Breath. Vapor. Huffing. Nothing substantial. Emptiness. The meaning is seen in the names of the first two boys, Cain and Hevel. The promise of the garden was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the first man born was Cain. And Eve says, this is substance. I've gotten a man from the Lord. This is something. Back in the 90s, David Letterman used to have a bit on his show. I'm dating myself, aren't I? I can't believe it was that long ago. 30 years, I think. He would have these strange performers come on and do these weird things. And then he'd look at his band leader and he'd say, I don't know, Paul, is that something? And then they would decide if that was something or if that was nothing. That was the whole bit. Is this something? Paul would say, I don't think that's anything. I think that's nothing. When Cain was born, Eve said, this is something. He'll make a name. He'll overcome the curse. He'll fix what's wrong. He'll crush the head of the serpent. When Abel was born, Eve saw him and said, ah, that's nothing. Hevel, vapor, wind, breath. It's no wonder that Cain responded in fury when God accepted Abel and rejected him. You receive him? He's nothing. I'm something. Look at me. And thus, as I said before, in Cain, we see our natural religion. Look at me, I'm something. Look at what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my wisdom. Look at my life. I have a reputation. I have possessions. I have power. I have influence over people. I have beauty and riches and wealth. And the answer in our text is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The Hebrew language has a way of connecting nouns together known as a construct relationship has two nouns put together in a certain way and they're pronounced in a certain way where in English we would supply the word of in between. So we have the house of God and so forth. If the two words are the same, like vanity, connected in this type of relationship, it's the superlative, the highest, the most, the greatest, the biggest. It's their way of saying est, putting it in the superlative. For example, the holy of holies means the holiness of the highest degree, the holiest place. The song of songs, that's the songiest of songs. And here, vanity of vanities. It means the height of vanity, the highest worthlessness, emptiness, breathiness. It's strange because that word doesn't really admit to a superlative the most empty. And here's wisdom. Here's the pinnacle of the highest thought of the wisest man who ever lived. What's the secret of life? What's the goal? What's the highest aspiration? How do we find peace and joy and happiness? What's the key that brings everything together? In our text, he's called the preacher. The Hebrew word koholeth is one who calls an assembly of God's people and then addresses that assembly. 
So here is God's people all gathered together. And we know that the whole world came to hear Solomon and his wisdom. And here's his final speech, his greatest accomplishment. They all gather, the people of God, the Kahal. They gather together to hear the wisdom of the Koholeth, the wisest man who's ever lived, the preacher. What will he say? What's the secret of life? Wisdom is the sound of one hand clapping. Love your family and live life to the fullest. No one ever goes to their deathbed wishing they had spent more time in the office. Seize the day. What pearls of wisdom will fall from his lips? When everyone is gathered and when everyone is silent, he says, everything is empty vapor. Utter nothingness. The vanityest of all vanities. The highest wisdom under the sun. The greatest accomplishment under the sun. A lifetime of labor and reputation and influence. Heaven. Breath, nothing. The late night host looks at Solomon and says, Is this something? We have the wisdom of the ages. Here's Ozymandias, king of kings. Here's Yorick, the skilled gesture and the kind friend. Here's Johnny Cash with his lifetime of wonderful music. Here's the ubiquitous Dollar General. They're everywhere. We have music and dancing and wisdom and foolishness and wine and whiskey and mountains of books and poems and essays and films. And is this something? The wisest man says, no, it's nothing. It's vapor, utter madness. Is this simply the musings of depression? Is it atheistic nihilism? Is he teaching nirvana, the idea that the Buddhists have, that there's a state of nothingness that we aspire to, and that desire is what causes all the pain in the world? Not at all. It's simply an acknowledgement of the truth that can only come from the Most High. The key word is under the sun. You won't find your place here. You won't find your purpose here. You have no place to stand here. Under the sun, although we see God's order in creation and the government of men, we also see that there's much we do not see. God's wisdom is far, far superior than ours. And ultimately, all of our labors under the sun are vapor. We fade and die like the flowers of the field. Like God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. You shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the reality. There's no work, no monument, no statue, no building. No organization that will outlast the unstoppable devolution to death, to dust. How's that for alliteration? And so we're challenged to walk by faith and not by sight. The problem is that we look under the sun and we expect the kingdom of God. And we think that it will look just like every other kingdom. We want to tell God what success looks like. 
So we define what success looks like and we call it wisdom. This is something. This is what something looks like. Look at that guy. Oh, isn't he something? Preacher says, that's not something. That's nothing. He calls us to turn off Facebook, turn off TV, take out the earplugs, look at life, meditate on the ruins. What is this? Is this something? Look at all of mankind. Look at what we spend our time on. Look at our hopes and our dreams and our buildings and our societies and our leaders and the music and the art and the wise men and everything done under the sun. Is it anything? Ozymandias collapses in the desert. The town falls to ruin. The dollar general falls down and the jester's lips rot off. And when we understand that, we'll find our freedom. Because we're no longer looking for the kingdom of God under the sun. The fact is on this earth we've shackled ourselves to a cruel bondage. We've locked ourselves up and become enslaved to nothing. We've enslaved ourselves to castles of straw. We've become bond servants to utter nothingness. And we've become slaves to the vanityest of vanities. We've sold ourselves as bond servants to jobs and reputations and possessions and toys and wealth, bank accounts and stock portfolios. We've allowed our self-worth to be determined by how many books we've read, whether we're married or not, how many kids we have, what kind of knowledge we have, what accomplishments we've made, how many likes we get on social media. And we say to ourselves over and over and over again, am I something? It's toil and grasping for the wind. And the answer, no matter what you accomplish, is always the same. Nothing. And yet we still do it. How many people do we count as friends? How many people look at me and say, now here's something. What about the long robes and the best seats in the synagogues and the invitations to the feasts and the greetings in the marketplace? We looked at Cain and decided with Eve, here's something. Here's a man that I want to be. Here's a man from the Lord. And we aspire to be the man from the Lord. We don't even know where Cain's grave is. The city that he built was swept away in the flood. We all live east of Eden. Mankind spread throughout the world, bringing with them the spirit of Cain. This is my name, my city, my identity. I'm something. But in the history of the world, in that endless quest to be something, millions were treated as nothing. Fuel for the fire and fodder for the mills. As the strong strove to be Cain, they filled the mass graves with the millions of Abel's. And everybody's names were forgotten anyway. Can you name one of the Hittite kings? Can you name one of the Egyptian pharaohs? King Tut. You probably got that one. You probably have to pause for a second and think about what the full name was. But the day would come when the promised seed would arrive. God calls him Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. He says, I will give him the throne of his father David. And the whole world would look at the baby and say, this is nothing. 
He was born outside and laid in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. He'd grow up despised and rejected. He didn't take the form of a king. He didn't take the form of something. He came as a slave. Cain had a city. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay down. He entered into our world of vanity, of breath, of nothingness. He was born under the law, under its curse. He lived a life of obedience in our world of vanity and was crucified as a slave, as a nobody, as nothing, as the offscouring of the world. And when he died, he turned the world upside down. When he rose from the dead, he conquered vanity, death, nothingness. He made something out of nothing. He's the creator. He can do that. Remember that he spoke into the nothing, let there be light, and there was light. He told Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth. He creates something out of nothing. Romans 4 says God brings to dead, brings the dead to life and calls into existence those things that were not. In other words, he called Abraham a father. And so Abraham became a father. He looks at the scattered, the outcast, those who are nothing, those who are not his people, and says to them, you are my people, and create something out of nothing. People like you and me, strangers to the promise, aliens in a land that isn't ours. He looks at childless Abraham and says, you're the father of many nations. He looks at the broken and the bloody outcast and he says, you are my people. He found us as an aborted baby cast away and ready to die and said to us, live. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us of this to keep us grounded to quit calling the things that are nothing as if they're something. Far too often, we think of success in life in terms of the things under the sun. This is also true in the church, where we measure success in terms of numbers and programs and influence and power. Solomon said, all is nothingness. The church is at the same time both beautiful, undefeatable, Glorious, impregnable, the gates of hell will not stand against it. But it's also the quintessence of dust. Because we, the people of God, have our feet in both worlds. In two kingdoms. One kingdom will reign over all and the other will fade into dust. Our conquests, our buildings, our worries, our sermons, even our names are forgotten under the sun. Cemeteries are full of dead preachers. But our names are written in the book of life, and we have a place on the throne of the Lion of Judah. It isn't a mark of despair, it's great hope. Our names are written in heaven, and that is something. The preacher in Ecclesiastes reminds us that our home isn't here, our treasure isn't here. Those things we long for aren't here. Under the sun, we've been given tasks to do. We've been given food, shelter, good days, friendship, beautiful wives, handsome husbands. We also have many dark days. We toil. And if we don't look up and see where Christ is at the right hand of God, our toil will seem useless 
without end, without hope. And yet through it all, through the toil and the labor of our souls, we hear the voice of the shepherd saying, Come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The goal of all of humanity is to rest with God in the eternal Sabbath. You remember what God did on the seventh day? He rested. He saw his creation and said, Behold, it's very good. That's our goal. To be with him in the eternal rest, saying, Behold, it's very good, and rejoicing. The problem is, we keep calling nothing as if it's something. We're too busy building castles and kingdoms, and we can't find rest. Even the gospel, as it's usually preached today, is more work, more hot air, more vanity, more stuff you got to do. You go away feeling exhausted. You don't find rest at the foot of the modern preacher. But Jesus came that we might walk with him into the throne room of God himself. And when we're there, we will know what it means to rest. I told you it would take me a long way to get around to Luke chapter 20. But now I'm there. Luke chapter 20 verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that they dared not question him anymore. Verse 41. And he said to them, How can they say that Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, best seats in the synagogues, best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. To the scribes, David was the highest point. He was the pinnacle of something. They looked backwards and longed for a day that was long gone. They thought Messiah would bring back the past glory of the kingdom of David. And conveniently forgot about Tamar, Bathsheba, and all of the Abels in David's kingdom. But they longed for that day of greetings in the marketplace, of long robes, of grand feasts where they would have the praise of men and control of kingdoms. And they thought that this was the kingdom of God. And Jesus cuts through it all with one quote. Why did David call his son my Lord? You see, David's kingdom is a kingdom of dust. Even while Jesus was speaking to the scribes, they were standing on the ruins of David's kingdom. In Jerusalem, his palaces, his walls, his city had all fallen down. A lasting city will be a city far greater than anything David could build. For David's body is in the grave, as Peter told the Jews. But David's Lord will rise from the dead. God will not permit his Holy One to see corruption, the psalm says. And this Holy One is preparing a place for us that never falls into ruin, never fades away, where there are no more tears, no more goodbyes, no more curse. 
and we'll finally have our rest. Because rest isn't going to come from the greetings in the marketplace and the long robes and the yes sirs and the no sirs and the bank accounts. It's only going to come in the arms of Jesus in the throne room of God forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, guide us in the paths of peace and give us rest. Forgive us our sins. Bless the meeting coming up. We pray that you would watch over us, keep us, direct us, and wrap us in your arms forever. In Jesus' name, amen.